This week we are continuing our, in our series through First uh, Kings. Last week we talked about Solomon, come Mr. Solomon, and he, the son of King David, who, had, who experienced a reign of peace in Israel, where God just provided a time of peace and rest for his people. Uh, but unfortunately, Solomon, uh, through the many strategic marriages he had, he was a polygamist with, with uh, many, many wives that he married strategically in order to have peace with other nations around him. Those wives actually ended up turning him towards their gods, and he turned from following Yahweh, the God of Israel. And, you know, the scriptures say the, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So he no longer feared the Lord, and so he... He acted, un- he acted shrewdly and wisely in his political life, but he acted with, with folly in his personal life and in, in the area of his heart and ended up not fearing God, and thus his wisdom uh, did not help him in that situation. So, so God says to Solomon, You're, I will not take the kingdom from you, but I will take it away from your son. And he pro- God prophesied that. So today's sermon is the next leg in the journey, talking about Solomon's son in that generation. And it's a, today's teaching is a warning for us as a church uh, not to fall into the same traps that our forefathers and mothers fell into. Um, King Rehoboam is the name of Solomon's son, and he is the ruler from the line of David. But this story is not just about King Rehoboam, unfortunately. It's also about another man, who becomes king of Israel, named Jeroboam. Which is really frustrating because it's very hard to keep track of who these people are as you read the story. Rehoboam and Jeroboam. And Jeroboam is not a son of King Solomon. He's a son of somebody else. He's the one that God gives the kingdom mostly into the hands of uh, because of Solomon's sin. So so to keep these guys straight, um, Jeroboam sounds like jerk, J-E-R. So he's the guy that's not from the line of David, Jeroboam. And Rehoboam, I guess a descendant of Rahab, (laughs) you know, the line of David. Try to keep those things straight. Um, You could call them Jerry and Raymond. I don't know. We're going to try to keep it straight. But Solomon's son is Rehoboam. Jeroboam, Jeroboam, is the son of somebody else who you'll see what happens. So what happens in in, in our story uh, is that Rehoboam, who was whose son? Solomon's son, yep. Was set up as the king after his father, Solomon, passed on. And his first decision as king was to treat the people much more harshly than Solomon had. That was his idea for getting support. And actually, I think Jason Harmon preached a message on this at one point. Um, Basically, Solomon, or rather Rehoboam, went to his friends and said, to the wise elders and said, what should I do? And they said, oh, you should, you should lessen the work of the people and, you know, make it more livable for them, make conditions better in the economy, these kinds of things. But he, he scorns that advice and goes to the young people that were his peers. And they said, you should double down on the harshness of Solomon. You should do conscripted labor and, like, just kind of act like Pharaoh of Egypt, tell people to make, make bricks without hay, that kind of thing. And he, Rehoboam decides to listen to the young people who don't know what they're doing and as a result of this decision, we know this is God's hand because we heard that God was going to take the kingdom from Solomon's line, from Rehoboam. Uh, because of his foolishness in leading, um, Israel under David and Solomon 
became broken, the United Kingdom of Israel, God's big dream got broken into two different kingdoms through Rehoboam's reign and because of Solomon's sin. And you have to think about the gravity of this thing. Israel being 12 tribes united under one king in a land of their own was the big dream from the time of the Garden of Eden until this time. And because of the decisions that Solomon, that David, Solomon, and Rehoboam participated in, the dream was shattered. And it plunged Israel into like a civil war situation where they were two different kingdoms, which is really discouraging because we've been reading a lot about God giving his people a land, God uniting his people underneath his rule, then underneath the rule of a king sent by God, and then we see the kings deteriorate. And so, the dream of a united Israel in the Holy Land, in Zion, David's city, being one kingdom, is, is dashed to, 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 to bits. So the ten tribes in Israel to the north, and two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, to the south, ruled by different kings, with different armies, different everything. And this is what God predicted would happen. So God's united people, who are now in God's promised land, are about to lose their unity. And thus, they lose a huge part of their national identity as God's people. So who is, who, who is this Jeroboam? You know, this is the, the guy that was the son of Nebat, not the son of Solomon. Jeroboam, uh, I'm going to read this, this uh, passage to you to see kind of where he comes from. Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, rebelled against the king, against Solomon at the time. He was one of Solomon's officials, an Ephrathite from Zerda, and his mother was a widow named Zeruah. Here's the account of how he rebelled against King Solomon. Solomon had built the terraces and had filled in the gap in the wall of the city of David his father. Now Jeroboam was a man of standing, and when Solomon saw how well the young man did his work, he put him in charge of the whole labor force of the tribes of Joseph. About that time, Jeroboam was going out of Jerusalem and Ahijah, the prophet of Shiloh, met him on the way, wearing a new cloak. The two of them were alone out in the country, and Ahijah took hold of the new cloak he was wearing and tore it into twelve pieces. Then he said to Jeroboam, Take ten pieces for yourself, for this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. See, I am going to tear the kingdom out of Solomon's hand, which would be Rehoboam's hand, and give you ten tribes. But for the sake of my servant David and the city of Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, he will have one tribe. So you, there's ten tribes. There's twelve tribes. Ten of them go to Jeroboam. One, it says, go, goes to um, Rehoboam. But really, that's Judah and Benjamin. So he's ruling from Judah, and he, so he's, he's got two tribes as well. Take ten pieces for yourself, Jeroboam. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. See, I'm going to tear the kingdom out of Solomon's hand and give you ten tribes. But for the sake of my servant David and the city of Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, he will have one tribe. I will do this because they have forsaken me and worshipped Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, Chemosh, the god of the Moabites, and Molech, the god of the Ammonites, and have not walked in obedience to me, nor done what is right in my eyes, nor kept my decrees and laws, as David, Solomon's father, did. But I will not take the whole kingdom out of Solomon's hand. 
I have made him ruler all the days of his life for the sake of David, my servant, who I chose, who obeyed my commands and decrees. I will take the kingdom from his son's hands, Rehoboam, and give you ten tribes. I will give one tribe to his son so that David, my servant, may always have a lamp before me in Jerusalem, the city where I chose to put my name. However, as for you, I will, not, I will take you and will rule over all that your heart desires. So he's saying this to Jeroboam. I will take you and will, you will rule over all that your heart desires. You will be king over Israel. If you do whatever I command you and walk in obedience to me and do what is right in my eyes by obeying my decrees and commands, as David my servant did, I will be with you. I will build you a dynasty as enduring as the one I built for David. And I will give Israel to you. I will humble David's descendants because of this but not forever. Then Solomon tried to kill Jeroboam, but Jeroboam fled to Egypt, to Shishak, the king, and stayed there until Solomon's death. So the, the summary is that God's, as he, as he predicted under Solomon's reign, taking ten tribes, giving them to Jeroboam, there will be two tribes for Rehoboam, but for the sake of God's servant David. So those two tribes in the in the in uh, Rehoboam's kingdom, they remain because God said in other prophecies there will always be a ruler on the throne of David throughout all history. So God was keeping his big promise that was made over and over again through the Old Testament to always have a ruler, to always have a lamp on David's throne because through David would come the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And so in all of this judgment, God is remembering his promise to David and making a way for the Messiah to, to come from the throne of David so that the the throne of David would never have someone not on it. Right now, God is on the throne of David. Jesus Christ is on the throne of David. So if you're listening carefully, I'm going to give you a little quiz. What reason did Jeroboam, what reason did God give Jeroboam to explain why Solomon was now going to lose the kingdom of Israel, its unity as one nation? What was the reason that God judged? God told Jeroboam he was getting the kingdom. Do you see it in there? That's right. Verse 33. I will do this because they have forsaken me and worship Ashtoreth, the gods of the Sidonians, Chemosh, and Molech. Not keeping my decrees as David, Solomon's father, did. So because, it was because of, of Solomon's idolatry, which he had allowed to grow in Israel, that David's grandson, the son of Solomon, Rehoboam, will lose everything except for those two tribes. The reason God gives for leaving Solomon's son Rehoboam a tribe was so that the lamp could continue in Israel and that Jesus would come from that place. So here we see in, in this uh, section the fruit of God's judgment of King Solomon. Because of Solomon's idolatry, because Solomon allowed the gods of his wives, which were kind of the greatest hits of the pagan deities of the day, um, because he allowed that uh, idolatry, the majority of the unified kingdom of Israel would be taken from Solomon and given to Jeroboam instead. And God left that remnant in David's throne so that God could someday bring Jesus through that line, which is kind of a side point. But because of, of Solomon's idolatry, the unity of those 12 tribes was lost. And the ten tribes of the southern kingdom go to Jeroboam, and the two remaining tribes will be governed by Rehoboam. And all of these consequences, 
this huge fracture of the very dream that God had for his people to have a land be unified underneath his kingship um, fell on Solomon because of his idolatry. God ended his prophecy to Jeroboam, son of Nebat, saying, If you do whatever I command you and walk in obedience to me and do what is right in my eyes by obeying my decrees and commands as David my servant did, I will be with you. That's a pretty good promise. As much as I was joking to call him, you know, Jeroboam or whatever. Like, God fully intended to bless Jeroboam like he had blessed David. He gave him a chance, even though he, he, he was essentially the judgment of God on Solomon's house. God gave this blessing to Jeroboam, saying that I'm going to bless you if you follow me. If you're obedient, you do what is right, you obey my commands, I'll be with you. So what happened to Jeroboam? The question is, is he going to rise above Solomon's uh, severe idolatry problem, or is he going to fall prey to the same temptations? His story is told in 1 Kings 25, 12, 20, 25. And it's not a very hopeful subtitle, Golden Calves at Bethel and Dan. <laughs> that tells you something, something is not going to go right in terms of idolatry here. Then Jeroboam fortified Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim and lived there. From there he went out and built up Peniel. Jeroboam thought to himself, the kingdom will now likely revert to the house of David. Is that what God told him was going to happen? No, it's his own fear. If these people go to offer sacrifices at the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem, they will again give their allegiance to their lord, Rehoboam, king of Judah. They will kill me and return to King Rehoboam. This guy is pretty fearful. So after seeking advice, the king made two golden calves. He said to the people, It is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Here are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. One he set up in Bethel, and the other in Dan. And this thing became a sin. The people came to worship the one at Bethel, and went as far as Dan to worship the other. This is very reminiscent of Moses and Aaron. Remember when they made the golden calf when Moses was on the mountain with God? God just made a promise to Jeroboam, I'm going to bless you. If you follow me, I'll bless you. You don't need to worry about the kingdom being snatched from your hands. And because of fear, because he got advice from the wrong people, he set up these idols. Jeroboam also built shrines on high places and appointed priests from all sorts of people, even though they were not Levites. Oof. This is a big no-no. I mean, God has so much to say in the law about who the priests are and what they do and what the qualifications were. Basically, Jeroboam said, who wants to be a priest? And whoever it was, even if they were really not a great person um, for, that, for that job, and of course not being Levites either, he just said, fine, you can be a priest. He instituted a festival on the 15th day of the 8th month like the festival held in Judah, and offered sacrifices on the altar. This he did in Bethel, sacrificing to the calves he had made. And at Bethel, he also installed priests at the high places he had made. High places were also a pagan no-no. So he was installing non-Levite priests into these positions that were already wrong, wrong, wrong. And he, and he also instituted a festival that kind of copied the festival that uh, the Israel did, but in his land. 
So he instituted the festival for the Israelites and went up to the altar to make offerings. By the word of the Lord, a man of God came from Judah to Bethel. As Jeroboam was standing by the altar to make an offering, by the word of the Lord, he cried out against the altar. The prophet said, Altar, altar, this is what the Lord says. A son named Josiah will be born to the house of David. On you he will sacrifice the priests of the high places who make offerings here, and human bones will be burned on you. That same day the man of God gave a sign. This is the sign the Lord has declared. The altar will be split apart, and the ashes on it will be poured out. When King Jeroboam heard what the man of God cried out against the altar at Bethel, he stretched out his hand from the altar and said, Seize him! But the hand he stretched out toward the man shriveled up so that he could not pull it back. Also, the altar was split apart and its ashes poured out according to the sign given by the man of God, by the word of God. Then the king said to the man of God, Intercede with the Lord your God and pray for me that my hand may be restored. So the man of God interceded with the Lord and the king's hand was restored and became as it was before. The king said to the man of God, Come home with me for a meal and I will give you a gift. But the man of God answered the king, Even if you were to give me half of your possessions, I would not go with you, nor would I eat bread or drink water here. For I was commanded by the word of the Lord, You must not eat bread or drink water or return by the way you came. So he took another road and did not return by the way he had come to Bethel. Skipping forward to verse 33. Even after this, Jeroboam did not change his evil ways, but once more appointed priests for the high places from all sorts of people. Anyone who wanted to become a priest... He consecrated for the high places. This was the sin of the house of Jeroboam that led to its downfall, to its destruction from the face of the earth. So question, here's another quiz. What reason did God give to explain why Jeroboam was now going to lose the kingdom and be wiped out from the face of the earth? What was the reason? What's that? That's right, yeah. He, once more, he appointed, appointed any, anyone that wanted to be a priest. He appointed them to high places, all sorts of people. He consecrated those high places. And it was a sin of the house of, the house of Jeroboam that led to the downfall and its destruction. In other words, once again, what destroys this, this hopeful beginning for Jeroboam, where God says he's going to bless him, is idolatry. Again. But this is like professional idolatry. This is, this is really uh, remarkable. God had promised to Jeroboam that if he remained faithful, that he was careful to avoid the idolatry of his predecessors, that God would bless him and make him into a great nation. But Jeroboam was not careful to follow God's instructions, as you pointed out. And Jeroboam, from his first moments as king, didn't trust God to sustain his kingdom at all. He was frantic, much like when, when King Saul offered the sacrifice when, when uh, the prophet was a long time in coming, when only the priest was supposed to do that, and then Saul lost his kingdom. Um, much like that, Jeroboam is, is frightened right at the beginning of his, of his reign, doesn't trust God's promises, and instead um, he creates almost a parody of worshiping God, if you will. So this very fear-driven leader, think about what he did. He, he, he created a parody of God's law to his own liking and then commanded his people to follow it. Really, what Jeroboam did was, was the definition of satanic, if you will, adjusting God's law so it is now Jeroboam's law. Um, 
It reminded me of when Moses and Aaron faced off with Pharaoh's magicians. And, you know, Moses would turn the water to blood, and then Pharaoh's magicians would do that by their dark arts. They would copy the miracle that God had done uh, to some extent. And that is kind of what Jeroboam's done. He's copied, created a parody of God's law. He duplicated the place of worship. Actually, not once, but twice in two different areas that were in his land. Uh, something that only God could establish. He established a priesthood of people that were not qualified to be priests and were not even Levites. It was anyone could come and do it. He even copied the, the festivals of Jerusalem, creating a festival that worked with his schedule for people to worship God, almost in, in a parody of what uh, they had done in the past. And he, huh, he took God completely out of the equation in favor of worshiping these two golden calves uh, that he set up in Bethel and Dan. And these golden calves, of course, they're a nod to uh, the foreign gods. This is a common symbol of Baal worship. So this is really not a good thing. So Jer- Jeroboam created this entire parody of God's law, which resembled God's law, but took God out of it, more or less, and put Jeroboam in the place of God. Listen to this language. The king made two golden calves. He said to the people, It's too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Here are your gods. Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. One he set up in Dan and one in Bethel. And the thing became a sin. Jeroboam built shrines in high places, appointed priests from all sorts of people, even though they were not Levites. He even instituted a festival on the 15th day of the 8th month, like the festival held in Judah, and offered sacrifices on the altar to the bull. So Jeroboam... He took Solomon's sin and he multiplied it. He really did. Something that could, could any, any one of those things that Jeroboam did could have resulted in him losing the kingdom. Any one of those things. We see it happen time and time again in the Old Testament. But all of those things together, he lost it. Like King Saul, Jeroboam offered sacrifices, unauthorized sacrifices on his altar. After God had promised him He would make his name great and preserve the kingdom if he would simply obey and not fall into idolatry. So he multiplied Solomon's evil. Solomon's evil, why he lost the kingdom, was worshiping, bringing other worship of other gods into Israel. But Jeroboam brought in a false priesthood, false gods, false holy places, and false festivals. It was just an amazing mimicking of what God's will was, but was certainly not even close. And the split between the smaller northern kingdom under Rehoboam and the larger southern kingdom of Jeroboam became much greater as all of this idolatry was happening. The people of God continued to spiral apart from one another. And in the story, in the book that we're using to read through the Bible... The narrator narrates for us between passages and says, Already divided in worship practices, the nation now also became divided in politics, in priesthood, in security and safety. For two generations, Israel's army had been the pride of the region, her storerooms filled with the precious metals, her people fed, her cities busy, her temple active. Now what would happen to Israel and Judah, split by disputes their leaders could not resolve? 
this paragraph made me pause and uh, it made me think, this is not so different to what's happening to the body of Christ in our day, the larger body of Christ. In our day, it could easily be said, just as in the days of Jeroboam, that they are divided in worship practices, divided in politics, divided in the priesthood, and security and safety. Think about that. Divided in worship practices, politics, priesthood. And the author of the story remarks, Now what would happen to Israel and Judah? Split by disputes their leaders could not resolve. Churches right now in our day are split by disputes that their leaders cannot resolve. People are having to improvise and seek wisdom and figure out how to respond to the things that are going on in the world around us. It's a good question. How would their leaders resolve it? Because, idolatry under, because of idolatry under Solomon, unified Israel was torn apart into two separate kingdoms. And then under Jeroboam, because of his extensive idolatry in worship practices and politics and priesthood, their leaders could not resolve any of this issue. Idolatry is the root of all of this. We must not miss this. Idolatry tears God's people apart. And we see that idolatry is at the root of disunity in God's people. We, we often think of idolatry as being an Old Testament sin. You know, we would never bow down to a golden image or a calf. That's not our worldview anymore. We look at idolatry as an ancient problem. But today's message is not an ancient message, but a message for us in the body of Christ today. In our day, if we succumb to idolatry in the church, we will use our lunity. Our <laughs> we will lose our, lose our lunity. We will, use, we will lose our unity in the church if we succumb to idolatry. It has been rightfully said uh, before to me, I've heard this quote, that what binds us together as the body of Christ, the very shed blood of Christ on our behalf, is stronger than anything that might divide us. The blood that God shed through Jesus' his Son to unite us into one body should be stronger than anything that can divide us. We should be undividable with the blood of Christ uh, coursing through our veins. I believe that if every person in the body of Christ worshiped God alone as revealed in the person of Jesus Christ, we would not be in the disunity mess that the church is experiencing today. We would not be split by our devotion to a particular political candidate, to a, to a political party. We would not be split by masking or not masking. We would not be split by vaccines or not vaccines, by in-person services or virtual services. These things would not split us. We would not be split by whatever cultural wind is blowing outside of our doors, outside of the walls of Christ's body of the church. We would not be split if we kept our focus on Jesus. But the church at large is split in the United States. The cultural winds that are blowing outside have affected the inside of the church. And you know I'm talking about the people, not the building. And, they are and those winds outside there are blowing unsuspecting Christians, good people, into a frenzy. Would you have ever thought that something happening out there would be able to take away the unity of the body of Christ that was bought through Jesus' blood? Would you ever have thought, thought that? Yet, in the church, this is happening. The big C church. We've allowed those cultural winds outside to blow us inside into a frenzy. As a friend of mine said, and which I keep on coming back to, if you think about the story of Jacob and Esau, we have sold the unity of Christ 
that he's given us for a bowl of soup. Um, like Esau did when he came in from the field. It is because of idolatry that Christians are divided in our day. It's because we have placed other things before our devotion to the body of Christ, which is the visible representation of Jesus on earth today. And the unity that Christ bought us through his death and shed blood on the cross, uh, we have placed other things before our devotion to God and to his people. This is not just an Old Testament problem, but it's a New Testament problem as well. It's, it's an us problem. In 1 John 5.21, the, the now-aged disciple, John, the disciple Jesus loved, in the middle of his teaching, he slips in this little phrase, feel, it feels like out of nowhere. He says, Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. Okay. Comprehensive. That word for idols, vices springing from idolatry, and peculiar to it, of greed for wealth, the worship of mammon, of an image in your mind of God and what God wants, a false God that you set up in your own mind. And John the Apostle slips in this dire warning, little children, keep yourselves from idols. Idolatry is just simply something you put in the place of God. Anyone or anything that might occupy the rightful place of God in your heart is idolatry. Even something you want or desire, something in the place of God in your heart. I think, I think a good way to identify idolatry is to think, when you're in worship, where does your mind go? You know, where, where are you thinking about? Where are the things that you are putting on the throne when we're in the presence of God on a Sunday morning? Idolatry can be uh, identified in that way. An idol is a false god set up in the heart of a Christian. And that word is not limited to, of course, a physical pagan statue like a golden calf or an Asherah pole. But in our modern era, we see the idols have changed form. But they still exist and still do their work in the lives of Christians. And many times Christians are unknowingly worshiping idols and practicing idolatry. An idol for you and for me is any idea, object, person, desire, and all the subsequent sins that can come from that, from not placing our trust in our faith in Jesus alone in our hearts, and lacking trust for God to carry us through difficult times and preserve us. When we revert to trusting in our own plans and scheming to keep us, go and scheming to keep us going, we've let an idol creep into our church. And I think for, for Jeroboam, right away, his God was security and power. I've got to establish my kingdom. Despite what God said, I'm going to do this my way. And that idolatry led to, led to the physical manifestations of idolatry in the golden calves. So in the days of Jeroboam, when God's people worshipped idols, as they did under Solomon before him, the unity of God's people was destroyed. In our day, when God's people worship idols, the unity of Christ's body of the church is destroyed or hurt. So as in the days of Israel and Judah, we can, when we practice idolatry, we become divided in worship practices, divided because of our politics, divided in the priesthood, which Christian leaders we think are the ones to follow, divided in our security, our safety. In other words, 
we lose it all. When we lose unity, we lose it all. And I think that is why Jesus prayed in, his, in one of the final prayers he prayed before he was crucified in John 17. My prayer is not for them alone, but for those who will believe in me through their message. So he's praying for, for us. We have come to believe through the message of the original apostles. My prayer is not for them alone, also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us, so the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them, I've given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I am them and you and me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. When idolatry brought about by whatever cultural winds are blowing outside the church, when that divides us, we lose everything that make us the body of Christ. And Jesus said his prayer was for unity of the church to come after him. Because through that unity, people will see that God sent Jesus in a mysterious way. Right now, the church in America is very divided. Many of the local churches in our community and around our community are losing unity within themselves because of differing politics, differing views of, of, max, of masks and vaccines, differing views of the role of government and varying interpretations of the Constitution. So many things are dividing people. These things are clearly dividing the world right now, but they must not be allowed to divide the church, the body of Christ. Because we have been bought with a price and called by name out of darkness into light, that we might call forth the praises of God and become a blessing to the entire world. And the unity that we have in Christ is a gift God has given us, something that we must maintain. It's like changing the oil in your car. If you're given a car as a gift from your parents, you got old enough to drive, you know, you change the oil in it. You, you keep it up because this is a great gift that's been given to you. Jesus prayed for us to have unity. And Jesus says the world will know that we are God's disciples and that God sent Jesus to save the world. So these things that are blowing outside of the church, it makes sense it's dividing people out there, but it doesn't make sense for people that are bought with the blood of Jesus to be divided. Because the, the thing that gives us unity, the blood of Christ, is greater in strength, or should be, than anything that could ever separate us. I love having a church full of people with different opinions and thoughts about the world, how things go. I've, I've always enjoyed that very much. But the way that our culture is blowing, what, what the enemy is trying to do in the world is to separate people into affinity groups where everyone around them agree, believes what they believe. And to stop people from talking together, to stop people from trusting each other and to stop people from being the body of Christ. That's what the enemy is trying to do. We must remember that the blood of Jesus that, that brings us together is stronger than any cultural force that could tear us apart. We must resist the sins of our fathers, of Solomon and Jeroboam, to cave into idolatry and not let those outside forces that are controlled by Satan divide us in any substantial way. We have to guard our unity as the body of Christ. Because God's dream for his church is that it would be a place of diversity and personality and temperament and gifting and, and, and intellect. We see this throughout the whole Old Testament and the New Testament. Different gifts, different personalities, uh, different, different things that people bring to the table. 
We are called to be different and diverse, but in full unity. A.W. Tozer said, you know, in an orchestra, we have anything from a flute to a timpani, to percussion, to strings, to trombones, and each of these instruments has a unique sound to bring to the orchestra as it plays together. And the reason that, that it works is because each instrument in this or- orchestra, as diverse as they are, as different as they are to play, is tuned to uh, the standard, which is, in our case, would be the love of God and worshiping Jesus above all things and resisting idolatry. When all these instruments are tuned to the standard tuning, the beauty of all those diverse sounds comes together and makes something together that is more beautiful than anything that could be played apart from each other. And that's what the unity we have in, we've been given in Jesus Christ is all about. It's a gift in that tuning to God's word and God's commands and the presence of God among us allows a diverse group of people to become a unified body in Jesus Christ, working together to make beautiful music for God. You know, what joins us together is stronger than anything that can separate us. We must not lose sight of the unity we've been gifted with, especially when the cultural winds are blowing hard outside the church. Ideally, I would say that nothing happening outside the church should ever be allowed to affect what happens inside the church unless it's us praying on our knees and interceding for the world. What binds us together is Jesus' blood poured out for us. What tears us apart is idolatry, which places certain ideas and things before God, causing us to not be in tune with one another anymore and to lose the unity that we've been given by Christ as a gift. Ephesians 4, 3 to 6. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. It's pretty extensive. Keep the unity of the Spirit. It's a gift that you have. Keep it through the bond of peace. Make every effort to do this. There's one body, one spirit, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God. I'll close with this passage from Colossians 3. And in this passage, we're reminded of of, uh, what binds us together in unity in the body of Christ. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. So anything, any of those sins flow from idolatry, you see. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways, in the life you once lived, but now you must also rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other, since you have been taken off your old self with its practices, and put on a new self, which is being renewed in knowledge and the image of its creator. Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. That's, a, that's an unbreakable unity that God's given us. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, 
humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace. And be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom, through psalms, hymns, and songs of the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So in those, in those quiet moments, as you're coming into the presence of the Lord to worship, as you're trying to, to read the word, as you're trying to plan your day, what comes to mind? It's so easy to fall into idolatry in our days, especially with the influence of the, the strong cultural winds blowing around us. But God has given us a gift in unity that, that holds us together stronger than anything, any bond that's around there. But we must guard it. We must guard it with our lives. I'm going to invite the worship team forward to close us in a song. And this is a song of offering ourselves to the Lord, recognizing that today and 10,000 years from now, we will be worshiping the Lord Jesus to keep our eyes on him. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the examples you've given in the Old Testament to teach us and to warn us. And Father, I pray that we would learn what idolatry looks like in our day and that we would guard the unity that you've given us by not falling into it, Father God. I pray that you would unify this church, Lord. The other churches in our area would become unified, that they'd stop being divided over small things which are not the main focus. That we'd be united in Christ by his blood. That we might be one, that the whole world might know that you came and sent Jesus.